The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, let's get to work. We have a lot to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do open them up. You can open a phone or a tablet to 1 Corinthians 11. If you're online with us, you can search Google for 1 Corinthians 11. We read from the English Standard Version of the Bible, so that might help you if you've got a Bible app or something like that, the ESV. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we're going to start in the middle of it and finish this whole, we got a lot of text. And you know me, uh, this will be an interesting long text to, to deal with. So here we go. Starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So I start right there because because, um, we're in the middle section of this book. There's actually five kind of movements to this letter uh, that we call 1 Corinthians. And this is the fourth movement, chapters 11 through 14. John started us off last week kind of moving into a section about Paul's thoughts concerning church services. Essentially, chapters 11 through 14, Paul turns his, his gaze towards the gatherings that this church in Corinth were having, and he starts to bring about some, some critiques, some ideas, some thoughts. He talks about spiritual gifts. He'll talk about how the body is supposed to function. He's talking about relationships and how we're supposed to love one another. He'll talk about some strange things like prophecies, and he'll start critiquing those who are speaking in tongues without interpreters. You know who you are, Right? Just keep it easy here, all right? So, so, so he, he's going to be addressing all of these things in this kind of uh, second to last segment in this book. And Paul's first real stab comes in verse 17. His first real jab at this church is in 17 where he says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That's what he says, which are not the words you want to hear from the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, Right? the guy who wrote most of our Bibles. And when he says, hey, when you guys get together as a, as a church to worship, it's really, really bad. Like you should really maybe not do that. Like you should consider not gathering. It's for the worse. You're actually doing more harm than good. So, so even right off the bat, Paul is entering into this conversation that I want us to enter into, which is based around this idea um, that, that as Christians, as churches, we can worship wrongly. Like, just because we get together on a Sunday in a room doing songs and, sing- and preaching, whatever, like, there's a right and there is a wrong. Now, there's a lot of gradients in between, but there are wrong ways to do it. So what I want to do before we really dig into Paul's uh, exhortation to the Corinthians is I want to just ask the question, what are we supposed to do when we get together as a church? Like what elements are supposed to be present in order for Christians in a room or not in a room, I suppose, online even, what what elements are required and necessary for us to do church, to do a church service or gathering? Uh, So I'm going to talk about a bunch of different texts. You don't have to follow me there. You can uh, write them down if you'd like, but... I'm just going to kind of give us a survey real quick of what the New Testament gives us in terms of elements for Christian worship services, okay? So I'm going to start with 1 Corinthians 14, which is a couple of weeks from now. This is what Paul says. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. 
let all things be done for building up. So he starts to give lists. There are lists all through the New Testament like this. Uh, We have hymns, he says, so we sing. That's a hymn, a song, okay? Uh, A lesson, which we think is probably like a sermon, kind of what I'm doing. A revelation, he mentions, which is kind of a word from the Lord for his people. Uh, A a tongue, which we're going to get into, okay? So uh, just, you got to come back in a few weeks. We're going to talk about tongues and prophecies and what does this Bible actually say about them. So we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But, But his capstone there is that all of the things that are done are for the building up or the edification of the body, of the church, That's what these are for. So everything that we do is for building each other up. Another uh, list that Paul gives is in Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians five says this, Paul says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is another place where he talks about corporate worship. And he says singing again right? Songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So who likes to sing, right? Like who likes to come to church and sing and lift their hands and make noise to the Lord? Like that's a good thing. That's one of the tragedies about this coronavirus season is that we, for a long time, we could not have these physical gatherings. And I don't know about you, but music on my couch is not the same as music with God's people. It's one of the few things that translates well on video. I don't care how good your band is. And our band is pretty good, but it's like, it just, it's not the same. I I love you all online, but it's just not the same. You know it, and it's okay. It's okay for this season, but it's biblical to sing to the Lord. It's it's biblical to to pray. He says, give thanks. So when we gather, we pray, okay? Uh, Move out of Paul for a second. Acts chapter two. Uh, This is the the apostle Luke who's writing this book. And he says this in in verse uh, 42. They, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So apostles' teachings, that's the Bible, okay? What we're doing, 1 Corinthians, like the Bible better be central to what a church is doing or else it's not a church, okay? So the the word of God, fellowship, so community is a part of this. He says the breaking of bread, which is like a a New Testament euphemism for uh, the the Lord's Supper, for communion, um, and then prayers, He says prayers again. So uh, Luke agrees with Paul. Very end of uh, the book of Acts, uh, in Acts 20, it says this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, the church, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So here we go again. The church is gathered on the first day of the week. That's why we gather on Sundays. Yes, the Lord was risen on Sundays, but we have uh, New Testament evidence that they were gathering on Sundays, not on Saturdays like the Jewish people, but on Sundays as Christians. They broke bread. Once again, communion is mentioned. And Paul spoke until midnight. So long sermons are very biblical, all right? Now, they, they probably started at like 6 p.m., but I'm talking six hours of preaching, is a, that's, a, that's a hoss, and at one point, it says that uh, somebody fell asleep while he was preaching, fell out of a window and died. So Paul legitimately killed. I mean, that's how good of a preacher that brother was. That's in the Bible, people. I'm not making it up, okay? First Thessalonians says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. That's for the gathering, okay? So uh, we do this. We greet each other. We forego the kissing part. All right, all the single dudes wish we would reinstate that, but you know, like we would grow as a church. That's a kissing church. No, we're not that church. COVID has put a stop to that. 
First Timothy 4 says, until I come, Paul is talking to his, his apprentice Timothy, he says, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So what Nate just did on our screens, what he read, that was the public reading of scripture, exhortation and preaching, teaching and preaching. That's what we do. So, so that's a lot. That's not exhaustive what I've just covered, but that's a lot of different things that you do as a church gathered. I'll sum it up. Here it is, the list. Don't write it down. Good luck. Singing, lessons, revelations, tongues, interpretations, giving thanks, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, prolonged speech, kissing, reading of scriptures, exhortation, right? Like it goes on and on. I could go on. I could find more. Um, There are lots of things that churches can do as they gather. But here's my question. Based on what you've experienced, churches that you have been to, what element in that list is the most important? I want to hear from you, okay? So tell me, what is the most important thing for us today? Worship, Worship, okay. Teaching, Teaching. what? Reading of word, something else? Nothing else? Is that a tongue? Do I hear a tongue? Do I hear an interpretation? Okay, no, okay. Long sermons, nobody said that. Um, Yeah, kissing, yeah, kissing. Uh, Here's the, the truth as I see it. It depends. Depends on what church you went to. Different churches value different things at different levels. So if maybe you came from a more charismatic background, maybe worship and singing was the thing that was most featured. If you were raised in like more of like a Bible church sort of place, maybe, maybe the preaching, right? I've been to churches where a guy preaches for upwards of an hour. I've not gotten quite that far. I've been close though. Not today, okay, I promise. But um, it depends on the church. But, but here's what I learned this week as I'm studying. Historically, the center point of the gathering of Christians is actually the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's not preaching, it's not necessarily the word, it's not singing, it's not fellowship, it's not caring for one another's needs, it's the Lord's Supper, also known as communion, or sometimes it's called the Eucharist, okay? So historically, that's what is the center point of our gatherings as Christians. And the question that I have then, and I've told you this before, is like, what's the right way to do communion? Whenever you visit a church, that's the question. How are you going to do? It's the wild card, right? I've told you this before. It's the wild card. Every time you go to a church, you got to figure out how they do communion. So is it the rip and dip? I've told you about the rip and dip, right? You've been to the rip and dip church where they've got one cup and one loaf and you just rip and dip, rip and dip. It's actually called intinction, but I like rip and dip, right? That feels a little bit uh, more my style. I think it's gross. Just put my cards on the table. Rip and dip is disgusting unless you're first in line right? You ever been to a rip and dip church? You get somehow in the back of the line and you get to that loaf and it's all matted down. You're like, oh no, right? And then you've got to rip a piece of the matted bread and you get to the cup and there's like floaties, right? There's like floaties of loaf in there. There's like some body floating in the blood. And you're like, I don't know what, uh, did somebody dip their whole arm in this thing? uh, Do you do it like we do it? Are we supposed to do it the way that we do it, right? With a, a, a little Jesus cracker? We call it a Jesus, right? And, and then, that's not technical. That's what I call it. And then just like a little shot glass of juice, is that what we're supposed to do? I mean, communion, communion is the true wild card at every church that I've been to. I visited a friend of mine at an Anglican church once, 
Uh, which was really interesting, really cool. But, uh, but when it came time for communion, we got in a line and started down the aisle. And so I have to survey because I got to figure out what am, I, what am I up for? Like, what am I going to do? And the, the, the priest or the pastor, I don't know what they call him, but uh, he got this one goblet and he like pulled up a cup. And I was like, oh, one cup? It's rip and dip. I'm ready for this one, right? I'm early enough in the line. The kid who's been coughing all service is behind me. I can do rip and dip, right? Then he threw me a curveball. Okay, because he takes the cup, he like holds it up, and then he drinks from it. And then as he's pulling the cup away, I, I kid you not, from his lip to the lip of the cup, there's a saliva bridge, right? And then he finds some sort of like Clorox wipe, wipes it, and passes it to the next guy, and he does the same thing. They call it common cup, right? I saw Lori gagging. That was, it's, right? Um, and this was pre-COVID, and I was like, where, I was looking for a way to tap out. Like, in the, at least you go to a Catholic church, you can pass, right? Like, I, I got to find a way to tap out of this, because I ain't drinking from the cesspool cup. Like, that's just disgusting. It's communion, communion the Lord's Supper. How, if this is the center point of the Christian gathering, the question is, what does Paul have to say about it? All of that was set up for our text today. So here we go. Let's read what Paul has to say about the Lord's Supper, starting uh, back where we left off in verse 20. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. If you're getting drunk off of communion, something's wrong in your church. It's not going to happen with our little shots of grape juice, okay? But like, that's just a rule of thumb. You get drunk at communion, something's wrong. Uh, Verse 22, what? Did you see that? Look at that in your text. What? With an exclamation point. I love that. Paul's like, he's shocked. That's the only way he can get it out in Greek. What? Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. That's what Paul says. It's a weird passage. Okay, people are getting drunk. People are starving. Uh, what? What? That's in there too. So let me explain what's going on historically because it sets up the rest of the passage. Okay, the Corinthians would gather on Sundays. We've already established that. They would likely gather in the evenings on Sundays uh, because they wanted to allow for poorer members of their church to work a full day of labor and then come to church. Remember, Sundays weren't the day off at this point. The Sabbath, Saturdays were for Jews, but Sundays were not the day off. So they would work all day and then they would show up. Normally, they would meet in the home of a wealthier church member. And churches were about this size of this room, like no more than 30, 40, 50 people in a room at the same time. But the wealthier members, they had big enough homes to house the whole church. Okay, so everybody would gather. And what would happen is they would gather for the Lord's Supper as kind of their main part of their service. But there also seems to be some sort of like fellowship meal happening. Think like first century potluck. Okay, that's what it was. It's like these guys were definitely Baptists because they were doing potluck in the first century. And, and wealthy members would provide the food, like the bread and the wine for communion for the whole church. But then each individual family brought their own dinner, brought their own food for their meal. And what we think happened was uh, the wealthy congregants would start early. 
because a lot of them had more flexibility in their work. They didn't have to maybe do a labor job that was quite as intensive. And so they would start eating and drinking early. Um, and, and sometimes they would eat and drink to the point where they are full and actually drunk to the point of being inebriated before church service starts. Baptists, right? Like you do that at your next potluck, okay? But, but then what would happen after that is that the later arrivals would, would likely be poor, like we talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians, they were slaves or freedmen, uh, those who were just one rung above slaves in that society. And they would come after a day of work and they would not have nearly as much food. They wouldn't have nearly as much to bring with them. And so they would often leave hungry, leave starving, some of them. So by the time they get to communion, the wealthy are full and sometimes drunk and the poor are hungry and starving And Paul is painting a picture here of the disparity in the amounts that the people in this church, this is all of us in one room. This is one church and some are drunk and full and some are starving. And Paul says this, he says, what? No, no, no. That's not how this is supposed to be done. He says, eat at your own home. Okay, we're not uh, doing this here. We're going to be unified. This is not unity that you're displaying here. This is disunity. This isn't even communion, he says. He says, it's actually, this is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. He won't even give them the dignity of saying you're doing it right. He's saying, it's not the Lord's Supper. This is your own meal. Those are the words he uses. So Paul's critique is very contextual here. His critique of the Corinthians in their practice of communion is, hey, you're not being unified. There are poor and there are rich and there's such disunity that some are getting drunk and some are starving and that's not how it's supposed to be. So this is now where Paul is going to uh, tell them how they should do communion. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, these are kind of the verses on communion. Okay, so we think that 1 Corinthians was written well before the other four gospels. Okay, 1 Corinthians is older than the gospels in terms of when it was written. So this is the very first time that we have of record that they wrote down what happened on, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. This was written before Mark or Matthew or Luke or John. This is the first record we have of communion, okay? So this is what Paul tells them. And if you are with us every week here at Fathom, you know this passage because I read it every week here at Fathom. So starting in verse 23, Paul has just said, don't do what you're doing. And now he says, here's how you do it. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we read this every week. Okay, if you're with us, you know we read this passage. Every, I'm going to read it again. Okay, after this sermon, we're going to read it again uh, because we read this every single week. But this is where it's from. This is the first time that anybody records what happened on the night when Jesus was betrayed. And, and let me kind of give you the background here. This is the Lord's Supper. Okay, but that actually comes from an event that we call the Last Supper. And that Last Supper actually comes from an event that we call the Passover meal or supper. 
So it's really three things. The Lord's Supper, which we celebrate, was actually the last supper which Jesus celebrated with his disciples, which is actually a celebration of the Passover Supper. So it's three meals that we are kind of chronicling. And Jesus, on the last night before he goes to the cross, is with his followers who are all Jews, and they're celebrating the Passover meal. Okay, and this is how it happened. Uh, They don't realize this is the ordinary, this is anything but an ordinary Passover. They don't realize that Jesus is about to go to the cross. He knows, they don't know. And in the Passover meal, the leader would, would, there's like a prescribed liturgy for how they do this. And the leader would take up the loaf of bread or the, 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 it's unleavened, so it's more like a cracker. And he would hold it up. And this is the liturgy of the Passover. The leader of the, the dinner would say this, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. He's recalling the Exodus story. And he said, this is the bread of affliction. And so Jesus with his crew, they're all in the upper room and he grabs the loaf and he holds it up and he says, this is my body. He he deviates from the prescribed liturgy for the Passover. And listen, you don't change the wording of the Passover liturgy after thousands of years of practice. You get killed for something like that. And so so Jesus reinterprets the Passover into the Last Supper. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And now we practice the the last supper in the Lord's supper. We commemorate that in the Lord's supper, which Paul just told us about. So I want to give us uh, with the remainder of our time, I want to give us three words about the Lord's supper. We could say tons. This passage is so dense. We could preach a whole sermon series just on this. I will save you of that. We're going to talk three words from this passage uh, for how we should do communion, how Paul corrects the Corinthians. The first word is this, remember. Remember. Paul says, do this in remembrance of me. Um, Why does Paul want us to remember? The answer that I'll give is this, followers often forget. Man, we forget. We are prone, no matter how much we love and worship and are devoted to Jesus, we forget. You ever read uh, the Bible? You do like a Bible reading plan and somehow you muscle past Leviticus and Numbers and you make it all the way to the New Testament. You ever read the New Testament through and think, there's a lot of the same story in this thing. You ever, you ever do that? Like, so I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the Exodus story, the Passover story is like on repeat through the Bible all over the place. Like just this week, I was like, let's just see how many times I can find it in the New Testament. The Exodus, the story of the Exodus. And I looking at the, uh, this is non-scholarly. Okay. So it's probably more in there, but I found it 13 times in the New Testament. The story of God's people being rescued from Egypt, from Pharaoh, crossing the sea, Moses, you know, that whole story, that's 13 times in the New Testament, okay? Why? Why keep bringing that up over and over and over again? I think God knows that that followers often forget. We forget the goodness of God. We, we, we forget the grace of God. We forget the provision of God. We forget God's faithfulness, especially when, when stress is high, when crisis is ripe. We forget how good God has been to us in the past. So 
God reminds us and he gives us reminders. He gives his people the Lord's Supper as a sacrament that we would uh, eat whenever we gather together so that we would remember. So we would remember. We remember his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, this is also why we don't believe that the sacrament of communion produces salvation, okay? Just so you're clear, we do not believe that there is anything that, that salvific that happens when you eat the bread and drink uh, the juice or the wine, uh, just like we don't believe that baptism is salvific, okay? Just because you get dunked in a tank of water and risen to a new life in Christ, you aren't saved there. That's tap water, it's not even holy. I don't even know how to make it holy. It's tap water. Communion here, before we got these little sweet pods, it was, it was legitimately oyster crackers and grape juice. I wouldn't even spring for Welch's. I bought Kroger. It's from King Supers. It's off the shelf. There's nothing magical about it. It's not salvific, okay? And, and I say it like this. You don't come to the table to get forgiveness. You come to the table because you already are forgiven. And it's to remember that, to proclaim that once again. You remember that you are forgiven through the body and the blood of Christ. This is one of the main reasons why we practice this every week at our church at Fathom. I know that lots of churches practice this quarterly or monthly. We do it every single Sunday because every single Sunday, I need to be reminded what God did for me. No matter what text we're preaching on, I need to remember that Jesus died and rose for me every week. So we remember. That's the first word. The second word is in the next verses, verses 27 through 32. These are some weird verses. Follow me here. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So that's a crazy passage right there. We could preach a whole sermon on that paragraph, but let me just point one word here. The second word of this uh, sermon, examine. The first word was remember. The second word is examine. In the Lord's Supper, we have the opportunity to examine ourselves. And I'll give you four other words. These are ones are for free, okay? The other ones you have to pay for. These ones are for free. The four other words are this. We reflect we repent, we realign, and we rejoice. Those are the four things we do in our examination. We reflect on ourselves. We look at ourselves and we figure out what's going on inside. And then when we find sin there, we repent. We repent. We say, I don't want to do those things anymore. We turn from our sin and we realign ourselves with Christ, with who he is and what he has done for us. And then we rejoice. It is a celebration. We celebrate the Lord's supper. That's part of the examination. And, and it's uber important for us in our day. 
In this cultural moment of today, with this commercialization and fast-paced and technologically soaked, like as a society, sociologists have pointed out that, that we've kind of given ourselves over to entertainment and stimulation and consumption and distraction to the point where as a culture, one of the ramifications is we, we can barely feel or, or stand to feel quiet. And stillness and introspection. We, we, we mute all of those feelings out with, with distractions. But for the Christian, the Lord's Supper is the space to examine. I think this is why we practice it every week, because every week I gotta stop and look inward. It's a space to reflect and repent, to realign and rejoice. So we examine ourselves. Now, that passage is, a, that, that, that paragraph is really convoluted. It has a lot of stuff, but sometimes uh, people will take that paragraph to mean that, that you need to be at a certain level of perfection or holiness to come to the table. Okay, I've heard people who say, hey, you know what? I'm just not uh, at the right place. I'm not, I don't have my stuff in order with the Lord. I don't feel worthy to come to the table. I, I probably shouldn't take communion. And, and like, I understand that sentiment and I'm thankful for you taking it seriously. It's not a Jesus. As much as I want to joke about it, that's not, it's not a crouton of Christ. That's not what we're doing. It's a snack. It's serious, but you don't come to the table because you're worthy. You come to the table to proclaim that you're not. You don't have to uh, uh, achieve some status to come to the table. You look inward and you say, I acknowledge that I am not worthy and you come to the table. The only disqualification from a Christian coming to the table is unexamination. Is not doing the work of saying, am I Am I following Jesus? Am I okay? You come to remember, use it as a time to examine yourself. And then finally, the last word that I'll give, the third word is in the last two verses, verses 33 and 34. Paul says, so then my brothers or sisters, when you come to eat together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So that's contextually for the Corinthians. He says, hey, why don't you just eat at home? Instead, when you get together, you're going to take the Lord's Supper, do it together. And, and so that's contextual for them. But I think we can extrapolate another point, a third word for us as the church, and that's the word together. The Lord's Supper is not meant to be done alone. It's rather meant to be done in community. And, and this is actually one of the bigger parts of the challenges for me as a pastor in coronavirus, right? Because some of y'all are up through, like I see the screen. I don't see you, like you're, you're there, you're somewhere. You're not, not there, but you're not here. And, and so one of the challenges is how do we do something that's meant to be done together when we can't all be together? And we wrestled with this. Like we talked about this. We prayed about this. Should we stop doing communion until we can get back together? Like, would it be better for us not to practice this while we were all in quarantine and we were all watching from our own personal screens? 
Because frankly, you're missing out if you can't be together. This is intrinsically built into communion. And I'm sorry if you're online. It's just, this is not the ideal. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The, the supper is not meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done together. And what it's actually forced us to do, if, if you've been with us for a while, it's changed how we take it. We all take it simultaneously. We take the bread together. We take the cup together. I actually think it's really cool how we do it because we used to just kind of come down and you'd go through the line and you'd take it at your own leisure. And it was a little bit more individualistic. And I think one of the things that COVID has forced us to do is kind of make it more communal. It's called communion. It's meant to be communal. But often we turn it into this like dark individualistic thing. We bring the lights down and it's just me and it's just Jesus and I get my little cracker or I rip and I dip and I, the band's playing like soft reflective music, right? Like that's just kind of how we do it in evangelicalism. And, and I like that, but, and goodness, like those things are important, right? I just talked about self-examination, like doing that. But while communion is personal, it is not meant to be private. It is personal, but it is not private. It is for the church. And while we're forced in this season to do it kind of scattered, that is not the ideal way, and it will not be the way that we always do communion. I long for the day when we can break the bread together, when we can drink the cup together. So that's what Paul says about communion. I have no big conclusion no, no pithy story, no like heartfelt story where I'm a hero and everybody else thinks that I'm really great, right? Like none of that today. Here's what I've got for you today. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's celebrate this together. Let's remember the gospel that God created all things. We rebelled in sin against him and Christ made a way through his life, death and resurrection for us to be reconciled to God. And now as long as uh, we admit that we are sinners and believe that Jesus died on the cross and, and confess that he is the Lord over us, then we are welcomed back in. That's the gospel. That's what we proclaim. That's what we remember. And then let's examine. Even, even as we pray, like do that examination, Okay reflect, repent, realign, and rejoice. And then we'll do it together as one body. Even if you are online with us, we will do it together. Let me pray for us and then we'll do that. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the gift that it is to be able to take the Lord's Supper together as a church even in these, these trying times, even when we are prone to forget how good you are, Lord, would you remind us, would you remind me once again that, that the bread is your body, that the, the, the juice is your blood, that, that your sacrifice is why we get to do any, that we, any of this that we are doing. So, so Lord, today as, as one body in unity, Lord, we wanna encounter you at the table. God, let us do the good, reflective work. Holy Spirit, convict us, work in us, call us out where we are uh, out of alignment. Realign us back to who you are so that we might rejoice with you today. God, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit.